Good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Glad we got the AC on, right? It is so good to be with the family of God this morning as we celebrated Jesus Christ in song. We'll dig into the Word of God here in just a moment to discover how we're called to live this life uh, that we love so much because we lean into the story of Jesus Christ who provides everything for us and does make all things new in our life. Thanks for being here this morning to encourage one another, but also to celebrate our risen Savior who absolutely sits on the throne in heaven. We want to say welcome to our guests that are here this morning. Thanks for joining us, being a part of Cross Point. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. And our hope, of course, would be if you're looking for a church home, that we'd love for you to consider Cross Point as your church family and join us in telling that story of hope that is Jesus Christ. What a great time uh, to be alive and well, to let that story of Jesus be known all around us in the community in which we live and all around the world as well. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 this morning. We'll start out in chapter 20. All of our texts will be on the screen as we're in this sixth week of Reveal, and we've been studying through the book of Revelation, uh, and what John is trying to tell us, the Apostle John, as he sends this letter to that first century church about 95, 96 AD, and calling them to remain uh, fixed on Jesus, to not take their eyes off Jesus, to not let culture lure them away from their journey, their walk. And in doing so, as we read it today as the church, he tells us the same exact thing. And so as we read through Revelation, we discover what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. And that's the the question that we've been answering this whole series. That overarching question is, how do I remain a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who's ready for Jesus to return? And I don't know about you, church, but I'm ready for Jesus to come back, aren't you? Maranatha, come quickly. We want him to come back so that we can celebrate pure peace and love in the presence of God Almighty. What a great day that is going to be for all of us. Now, your homework next week is to read Revelation chapter 21 and 22. First service, I said homework next year, but next week is uh, when that's due. So read those two chapters and be prepared as we finish up our series in Revelation together. Now, the text that we're going to take a look at today is exciting. It is at times confusing. Uh, There are several interpretations of what the text actually means. Uh, But what we're going to unpack today is this idea of the wedding feast. The groom is coming back to get the bride. In church, you and I are the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about what that looks like, what that means in chapter 19. But we do need to dig into chapter 20. And there is this phrase or word that has been kind of investigated and interpreted different ways. And I want to give you some of those interpretations in just a minute. The word is millennial. 
What does it mean, this thousand years that is talked about in chapter 20? Now, I want to remind us all, too, that uh, as we've gone through Revelation, that we've acknowledged that um, it is a symbolic book. It's written symbolically, so the church understood exactly what John was talking about. Uh, but it would be difficult if that message was intercepted by the Roman government to really figure out what was being said. So let's dig into chapter 20 right away uh, and look at these first six verses of chapter 20. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which was then shut and locked, so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. But then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. Indeed, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this thousand years, is, it, is Satan bound right now or is it some future event that will happen somewhere down the road? Or is it a, a symbolic piece of literature that explains what's going on in the world right now? There are three or four different interpretations of this that are out there, mainline interpretations. I want to give those to you and you've got some notes there on the back of your bulletin to take some of this down because it can be confusing if we're not careful. One of the first ways that some people uh, interpret those six verses in chapter 20 uh, are called premillennial view. It's, their idea is it is a, a literal thousand years that has not yet happened but will happen sometime in the future. And so if, they hold, if you hold this viewpoint, then you realize you're currently living in the premillennial error, meaning that hasn't happened yet. It's before the thousand years comes to fruition. Chapters 4 through 19 in Revelation is a foretelling of future events that will happen and culminate in the millennium. The church will be, be raptured. Uh, to Jesus, and then chapters 4 uh, and beyond will happen once the rapture occurs, and all of the suffering that will happen in the world is really in place to bring other people into recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord and give their lives to Jesus during that moment. So if uh, those are the high points of the premillennial view, and uh, there are those out there who subscribe to that idea. The second one is the amillennial view. Uh, and it's the idea that the thousand years is figurative and it's ongoing right now. That chapters 4 through 19 in Revelation are really about the spiritual realities, the spiritual war that's currently going on that we see in the physical world around us. Sometimes it emerges that way. 
And although Jesus reigns in the millennium, the church still has to face evil. The church still has to face persecution. The church still faces uh, cultural seduction right along with the rest of the world. Jesus will eventually return, and it will be a once and for all event at a future moment that no one truly can predict. And so those are the highlights of folks who may find themselves in this amillennial viewpoint. The third one is the post-millennial viewpoint. It's this idea that uh, the thousand years is a figurative time period, but it's a period of peace on earth, and then Jesus will come after that period of time. The difference in this view is that most everything in chapters 4 through 19 in Revelation has already occurred, and that has culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that needs to happen in Revelation has already occurred if you hold the post-millennial view. Someday Jesus will return fully, uh, but uh, the millennium is right now, and it's kind of functioning as a golden age for the church in which much of the world kind of acquiesces or understands kind of the Christian ethic that is out there on the world right now. It's observed and practiced. So you've got this pre-millennial viewpoint, you've got the amillennial viewpoint, and you've got the post-millennial viewpoint. There is a fourth one. It's called the pan-millennial viewpoint. It's the idea that everything's just going to pan out in the end. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Move on. That's a widely held viewpoint. But church, what John is really trying to let us know as people of God is we need to live every day as if Jesus is coming back today. That we need to live in such a way that we need to live a life that gives him glory in everything that we do and we say. We need to live the kind of life that tells the story of Jesus by the way we treat other people, by the way we hold in high esteem who Jesus Christ is, by the words that come out of our mouth. That's the kind of life that we're called to live. Because the truth is, as said early on in this series, no one knows the end time date. There have been many people that have tried to discover it. They've tried to formulate it and figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back. And it's just not possible. One of those examples is a guy by the name of Edgar Wisnant. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. We're still here. He kind of narrowed it down, and he kind of tracked some things in Revelation. And he had narrowed it down to September 10th through the 13th. Jesus would come in that period of time in 1988. When that date came and went, then he wrote subsequent books on why he was wrong in that interpretation and why you should believe this next one. Church, be skeptical of date setters. It's just not possible to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, I don't know when I'm going to return, but the father will turn to me and say, go get your bride, and that's the day I'll come back and get my church. And we need to live as if that day is today, like it's every day that we wake up. Today could be the day, and I want to be that faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And while we don't know some things about the end time, Chapter 19 reveals some things that we do know and we can have confidence in. And if you don't remember anything from today, I want you to remember this one line because it's absolutely important to our Christian journey, and it's this. Knowing Jesus is returning is more important than knowing when Jesus returns. And we do believe Jesus is coming back for us, right? 
we live that kind of life where we make that uh, the most important thing is that we share the story of Jesus, that we follow him, and that we absolutely believe Jesus is on the throne in heaven and he is coming back to take us home. I'm excited about that day. I can't wait for that day. I hope it's today. It's going to be a great day. So church, don't get fixated on end times, on end date times. Don't live in anxiety, but live in joyful anticipation of what you and I get to look forward to because we're devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is an exciting thing in our life because two things are absolutely true. There is a moment at the end of time where some of us will get to be with God and others will not. Those are two very realities that we know about the end time. And we want to make sure that we're part of God's story in a positive way, that we have leaned into the story of Jesus Christ and we represent him well in this life. Because church, if we're honest, if you're anything like me, there are moments in time where we just kind of push autopilot on our Christian walk, don't we? Moments when we lose that sense of urgency to let other people know around us how important it is that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one person who can bring them true hope and true peace, who can truly transform who they are. It's so important that you and I let people know about Jesus Christ. It's been my experience that people don't need to be told that they're going to hell. They need to be shown how to get to heaven. And we need to be those kind of people, not browbeaters, not people who condemn, not people who judge, but people who show others what it's like to follow Jesus Christ and how we can be changed people, joyful and loving and compassionate people because we've made a decision. The the truth is, most people don't care what your millennial view is. People who are far from God certainly don't care. But they do need to know what it means to have hope in a risen Savior. What it means to love a risen Savior like he loves us. No one really knows what the end is going to look like. But I will tell you this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to love it. If you're not following Jesus Christ, it's not going to be a good day for you. You're not going to like it at all. Because when Jesus comes back, he comes going to come back with power and authority and majesty and kingship. I mean, this is a Jesus Christ whose eyes are on fire and a sword is coming out of his mouth. He's on the winning team. He is the winning team. And I want to be a part of what he is doing in this world to make it a great place. A better place like he intended it to be early on. And while studying the word is important and discovering different nuances within that, understand that we've got great Christian men and women who fall into one of those three categories in those millennial viewpoints. And it's okay to disagree on maybe what that text actually says. It's not okay to be divisive about it. It's not okay to beat other people up with the information you believe that you've gleaned. I mean, all of us would be wise to realize that we really don't know much of anything about the end. We don't know much what that's going to look like. We do know this, that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and he's coming back for his church. And we can proclaim that message any day of the week. You see, Jesus Christ is that groom and we are 
the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ must be ready for the wedding. Church, we've got to be ready as the bride of Christ for the wedding feast that is going to happen. And we've got to prepare ourselves for that special awesome day when Jesus does return. John tries to give us a picture of that in chapter 19. And I want to go to chapter 19 uh, right now and start in verse 6. John says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. There's a lot of people at the wedding feast. There's a lot of stuff going on. It is a great and glorious time. John goes on to say, Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. This is a glorious moment where the wedding feast truly begins. Now, I've gotten to do a couple of weddings this summer and I've done plenty in my past. And what I've discovered at every single wedding, it's the same thing. It is all about the bride. Every time. The guy just shows up and he does what he's told if he's smart. That's, what, that's the way it works. <laughs> it's all about the bride. Because she has planned this event forever. She's talked about it with her friends. She's imagined what this day is going to be like. She bought the dress. She saved the money so that everything could be just like she wanted it. The wedding is all about the bride. Except this wedding. This wedding is all about the groom. It's all about Jesus Christ. John uses a word here, praise the Lord. Another version might say, hallelujah. It's words that have been pushed together. It really means translated, sing to Jehovah. It's only used four times in the New Testament, and all four times are right here in the first six verses of chapter 19. Praise the Lord. Sing to Jehovah. Hallelujah. Isn't he glorious? Look at the groom. He is an incredible king and Lord. John goes on in verse 8. The church has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. You see, we, the church, because we live out the life God's called us to live, have been given this, this white garment, and it symbolizes our allegiance to Jesus Christ, our purity to tell the story of Jesus all around us, and our allegiance to Jesus should be evident in the world around us, to our friends, to our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. Everyone should know that Jesus is the most important thing in our life. Nothing else really matters. And like a bride, all Christians should be proud of their choice, that they've chosen to follow Jesus Christ and who they are in Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 tells us, we'll look at this next week, but tells us who is not invited to the wedding feast. John lists the immoral, the idolaters, those that are greedy, unbelievers, and then he mentions 
the cowardly. The cowardly are not invited to the wedding feast. It's a reminder that if you want to be invited to the wedding feast, then you should be on fire for Jesus Christ. You should have a life the world around you realizes, now that person right there is in love with Jesus. That person is compassionate and loving and merciful and full of grace. This is a person who clearly wants to follow God. There should be no question among your family and friends and coworkers who you follow. You don't want to be found cowardly on the wedding day. I mean, let God's words describe what our groom truly looks like. The one who's going to battle the prince of darkness for you and for me. Take a look at verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. This is the Jesus that we know. All-powerful, full authority, and he wages war against the chaos that exists in this world. He wages war against the prince of darkness, against Satan. And he wears numerous crowns, and he's wearing a royal robe that's splattered with his own blood. The visual that we all need to realize and remember what he did for us on the cross. And it's significant that Jesus is riding a white horse in this part of the text. You see, John's uh, readers in that first century would have clearly understood what John was saying in this moment. Because on the battlefield, after the battle is over, the victorious king would mount a white horse and he would ride through the battleground. He, he would look and ride through the, the people that were conquered, the town, and they would see who their new ruler is, who their new lord is. But of course, it would happen after the battle was won, yet it was a sign of victory. But yet in our story, Jesus is on the white horse before the battle. Why is that? Because, church, he's already won the victory. He's already won the war. There is nothing left to prove. He's already conquered and is victorious over anything that Satan could throw his way or our way. He's won the battle at Calvary, and Satan knows that his time is over. And now he's coming back to consummate his marriage. He wants to, to validate his authority, to take his bride back to his home. And he's doing that in this text. That's why there's blood on his robe before the battle. He wants to give a visual to all that are watching of what he's already done to purchase his bride, what he did on Calvary. Our text goes on in verse 15. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the mighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Church, this is no typical groom, but this is a warrior who is going to battle for you and for me against the prince of darkness. He wants to save his bride, that's you and me, from what Satan wants to do to us in this world. 
Look at verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. You see, Jesus faces off against all of those things that would be against us, all of our greatest enemies. You and I have seen the Hollywood movies, we've read the history books, and we understand how a typical battle goes. It's an ebb and flow. It's a back and forth. But understand the battle that Jesus is involved in, the one that he is leading, there is no ebb and flow. It is one movement, and it's Jesus moving forward. Matt Proctor writes, The enemies arrayed against our hero are many, powerful, and horribly wicked. But in an instant, Jesus just destroys them. He's that powerful. It's the most lopsided battle in all of history. He simply dispatches our enemies. Church, this is not the baby Jesus in the manger that we end up seeing around Christmas time. This is not the Jesus who surrendered himself to earthly authorities to be killed on a cross. No, this is a victorious king, our risen Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who reigns on high. He is awesome. And he's coming back for his bride. That's you and me. And I'm excited about that day. Satan's childlike attempts to crush Jesus do not even compare to the power, might, and authority that dwells within Jesus Christ. And Jesus ends up destroying three major things. All the demonic allies of Satan, Satan himself, and in chapter 20 and verse 4, we realize that he's also destroyed death and Hades. Church, we have nothing more to fear. Jesus Christ reigns. Praise God. And there is nothing, church, nothing that can separate us from God. Absolutely nothing. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? No. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Church, we are on the winning team. The Lamb has won the day and is victorious. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Almighty God, is the one at the end of the day who holds the crown, who holds the throne, and everything else is vanquished. John is calling us today, don't take your eyes off the Lamb. Don't make a decision to move back into the world because whatever the script the world is offering you will fail in comparison to what Jesus Christ will offer you. He will transform your life and everything will be exactly how it should be according to creation and story because Jesus Christ will make all things new. He's already won the day. And so John wants to call us as the church. Hang in there. I understand that there's persecution. I understand there's temptation. I understand that Satan is trying to pull you away from your relationship. And that's evident all around us, even in our congregation, amongst our families. There is distraction. And Satan is trying to wiggle his way in to separate us from our relationship. But church, today's a reminder by John. That Jesus Christ has already won the day. And we have nothing at all to fear from the prince of darkness. 
I'm going to invite the praise team back to the stage at this time. And, and as we sing this song of encouragement, uh, our shepherds will be gathered around this room. My hope is as we sing this song that, that within yourself, you'll make a decision. If you've pushed that autopilot button, if you're just kind of cruising through life, that you'll rethink that. That you'll hear John's call for us to articulate how much we love Jesus Christ and how he's changed your life. That everyone around you should know that he is the supreme ruler of your life in every possible way. And maybe you're dealing with, with some issue within your own life. You, you, you're, you're dealing with a relationship that's broken, a family thing going on, or maybe the loss of a job. Maybe there's something, some temptation that continues to come your way. And let me encourage you to step away from your chair as we sing this song. Go find one of our shepherds and let them pray for you that you'd have strength in the moment to overcome the prince of darkness, because Jesus Christ loves you. There is salvation and forgiveness when you surrender fully to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's stand and sing together.